The Guardian. After many weeks of fighting, the former rebels celebrate their victory. But after constant bombardment by land and air, the city lies in ruins. We have learned reports from Libya that Muammar Gaddafi, the leader of Libya for more than 40 years, has been killed by rebel forces. According to Libyan TV, he pleaded, don't shoot, don't shoot, but they shot him. Colonel Muammar Gaddafi said he would rather die than step down from the leadership of Libya. But his grip on power also resulted in the death of many others. He leaves behind a country deeply scarred by his rule. There's a new Libya emerging from the ashes of the war. But after 40 years of rule by the Gaddafi regime, achieving political and economic stability won't be easy. I'm Hugh Muir and in this week's Focus podcast, we're going to assess where Libya is now and explore what path the country should take for peace and prosperity in the future. Things are settling down uh, pretty quickly, especially now that uh, a new prime minister has been appointed. Um, he's a, a reputable figure. This is Juma El Jamati. He's the UK representative of Libya's National Transitional Council. A government together that will enjoy the consensus and support of uh, the great majority of Libyan people and and those who are active, uh, whether um, fighters, freedom fighters, or political activists. That's Abdul Rahim Al-Kib. Um, what do you know about him, and, and, and does he have the credibility to be able to, to bring various um, sides together? Yes, very much so. You know, he's a, he's a, he's a world-renowned uh, academic and expert on um, uh, energy, uh, electrical energy, as uh, uh, an expertise that is badly needed in Libya, but more importantly than that, he's lived abroad. He taught in uh, the United States and the United Arab Emirates uh, as a professor. He was part of the Libyan opposition for almost 30 years. He has never been uh, involved uh, uh, directly or indirectly with the Gaddafi regime. Hence, he is not tainted at all, and he is well respected. And um, he comes from Tripoli. He's a he's a as a quiet man. He uh, enjoys bringing people together he doesn't have many hardly any enemies and he will uh, meet the challenge of this current phase which is uh, eight months uh, until we uh, directly elect a national uh, council that will oversee things for another 12 months to draft a constitution and final elections but there is some material in that uh, uh, we ran in our newspaper on Tuesday, which talks about um, a roundup, if you like, of uh, pro pro Gaddafi um, supporters still in Tripoli. Um, it seems to be a fairly bruising protest pro- process, and there are some people saying, you know, you're round. There are people being rounded up. We don't know where they are, um, and that that's what used to happen under the Gaddafi regime. So that reconciliation is not going to be easy, is it? Well, uh, reconciliation is not going to be easy, but uh, there is a, a strong will to go through reconciliation. As for those who are rounded up, there are thousands who have been rounded up. These are key figures who have been uh, uh, propping up and, 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 and making the Gaddafi regime. We know exactly where they are. They are in main prisons in Tripoli. They have been visited by various human rights organizations. There is full access to them. Even some of the media have had access to them. They are they are well treated and they await um, investigations and if there is no case to prosecute any of them then they will be released how much can outsiders help now um you hear stories about trade delegations um heading out there some people talking about a bit of a gold rush if you like i think it's inevitable that uh, as libya embarks on reconstruction and rebuilding uh, international companies will see a huge potential and a chance for them 
to develop business. I think it's normal, it's natural. Uh, but uh, the main thing is that uh, it's Libyans who will make the decisions and award any contracts. And I've always said, and everybody's saying it, contracts will be awarded based on merit, based on uh, competitiveness, and based on quality and price. There will be no political favoritism. But that sounds as if you are very alive to the need to avoid the kind of exploitation that some people would say occurred in Iraq, for example. The dynamics are totally different, totally different from Iraq. There is no invasion in Libya. There is no occupation in Libya. There are no foreigners running the internal affairs of Libya. Libya is uh, controlled and run by Libyans, and it's the Libyans who will make decisions, and they will make prudent decisions based primarily on Libyan interests. So the dynamics are, are totally different, absolutely. And everybody understands that. The Transitional Council's man in London. So Gaddafi has gone, the NATO operation has finished. What are the business opportunities to be found? Is a gold rush happening? I put this to Lord Trefgarn, chairman of the Libyan British Business Council. I believe that to be an exaggeration. Um, the, certainly there are lots of opportunities, but uh, the funds availability is... Uh, not unlimited at the present time, somewhat restricted, in fact. But that's not to say that we shouldn't uh, start talking and get people out there, and we, sh- we at LBBC will be doing just that in, in, in the weeks and months ahead. Obviously, you're a great oil trading nation, but when things do open up, what will be the industries that one would look to? Where would, might Libya be particularly strong? Well, you've you just mentioned the oil industry. Uh, the oil industry is crucially important for the Libyans because, for the moment, that is their principal source of, of new revenue. I dare say the only source of any uh, any practical size. Uh, and so they will be anxious to get Libyan crude oil production back on stream uh, uh, as it was before all this started, just as quickly as possible. At the moment, it's about a quarter of what it was uh, when the uh, conflict started, but uh, increasing, I think, month by month quite uh, happily. So uh, uh, I would hope that within a year, uh, maybe less, Libyan crude production will be back at the level it once was, 1.6 million barrels a day, I think was the last figure. You talked of opportunities, but where's the line? To, at what point does uh, necessary help, required help, become exploitation? Well, I think that the, the, the Libyans themselves must lead this process. Uh, and they're sensible enough, I think, not to uh, subject themselves or expose themselves to the exploitation. I've made it quite clear to LBBC members and to anyone else interested that it's not, as I say, going to be a bonanza for British firms. They're going to have to compete uh, and they will get the business when they offer good value for money to the right specification, the right price and everything that represents a good deal. You make an interesting point there because, of course, in Iraq there was a sense that because certain countries were involved in the the military action there, that thereafter those countries should also benefit from the commercial contracts. But that's not how things are being seen in Libya. I I don't believe it is. Although the the mood music for British firms and French firms and firms who were uh, were part of countries that were involved in, in, in the native operations... Um, and nonetheless, it's not much more than mood music. And the idea that we can uh, get the business simply by quoting and not tendering competitively is, I think, a wrong one and a mistake. How does one play the politics? Because, of course, we uh, traded quite significantly with the, the, the Gaddafi regime. D- does that matter now? Um, I think that's all history now. Uh, the uh, new uh, Libyan authorities have made it clear that there will be no vindictive uh, 
attitude to those who were involved with the uh, previous regime. Uh, so I think we'll be back there, back there competing um, along with everybody else. Let it be said, of course, the British firms were trading in Libya before, of course, as were the, the firms from most of the other countries now back looking for new business. So business types are heading for Tripoli, armed with their checkbooks. But joining me in the studio, we have our Middle East editor, Ian Black. On a slightly questionable uh, mobile phone line, we have Haith Abdul-Ahad, who was recently in Tripoli, and who before the fall of the Gaddafi regime was held prisoner there. Also Saad Esedeg from Libya Relief. He's one of the most prominent Libyan activists in the UK. Welcome to you all. Haith, let me start with you. You've been writing very vividly about the state of play in Tripoli. Uh, Juma al-Jamati told me that there was no violence there. Is that right? Uh, yes, there, there is no violence in, in, in Tripoli, but all the signs of, uh, you know, of the few, like, of a potential violence is there. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm very nervous every time I see uh, many different factions, many different militiamen, uh, each kind of trying to grab power. Uh, there is some jostling for power at the moment. So, yes, there is no violence in Tripoli at the moment, but the signs are there. And we read about an awful lot of guns there as well. Yes, I mean, uh, y- you know, and uh, Tripoli, Libya in itself probably, uh, uh, you know, are awash with guns. And, and that will create a center within that region. Uh, you know, Libya is surrounded by but by really hot spots, you know, in, in you have Al-Qaeda in Maghreb, you have uh, Latwarg in the south, you have Niger, you have Mali. All these places would, would love to get some guns and all these different militias and factions would eventually find themselves, you know, uh, in the middle of a regional conflict. You have to look at Lebanon, Lebanon in the 70s and 80s and how uh, the amount of weapons that was in Lebanon created uh, momentum in the, in the rest of the Middle East from militias and, and different factions. Ian, we, we kind of know what we read and there are loads of stories suggesting that uh, Libya's on a knife edge, you know, will democracy take hold, will there be Sharia law, will Al-Qaeda emerge? Uh, of course we know that was the spectre endlessly invoked over the years by Colonel Gaddafi. Are you worried? Well, I think that it's inevitable that after 42 years of a pretty repressive dictatorship, then the transition to something different is going to be you know, at the very least bumpy, to use a sort of English understatement. And it's true there's a lot of men with guns in Tripoli. I, I was there until about a week ago. Uh, I think it maybe is slightly less tense than it was when uh, Reith was there uh, a few weeks before that. Uh, there are huge problems facing Libya. But what there is in Libya is a pretty much a wall-to-wall consensus that whatever happens in the future, it can only be better than it was under Gaddafi. And I think it's very, very important to remember that point. It's also worth making a comparison between Libya as it is today, two weeks after uh, Gaddafi's death, uh, Tripoli fell to the rebels on the 20th of August. If you make a comparison between Libya as it is now and Iraq as it was uh, a few weeks or a couple of months after the uh, after the uh, U.S. invasion, then Libya is a, a shining example of hope uh, for the future, which is shared by many people, notwithstanding uh, the the very significant issues that need to be tackled. But the enthusiasm for the change is enormous. Saad, is that your take on uh, on events? You fought long and hard to get us where we are. Um, how do you assess where we, exactly the, the position today? Well, first of all, I think your uh, your guest, Abdul Wahid, is a bit uh, pessimistic, to to say the least, because uh, 
I mean, Libya is awash with guns. I mean, Benghazi is full of guns and uh, Derna is full of guns and things. And you don't even hear of normal crimes. Even the, crim the crimes are much less than they used to be in, when, when there was supposed to be security in the country. Uh, I think you need to look at the Libyan psychology in this because in Libya, I mean, we don't expect an internal war or a civil war or something like that. Libyans will not turn against each other. The only reason that they've fought each other in, in, the, in, the, in the last few months because of, of the Gaddafi influence over 42 years and because of all the mercenaries and all the money that was pumped into, uh, in, in, into that conflict. And also because people had very, very, very strong feelings against the 42 years of, of Gaddafi's regime. So people wanted, they knew that there was no way back. And if Gaddafi took over, they will, he, he will massacre thousands and thousands. So there was no way back for Libyans and they had to take that war full on. The, the, what he's saying about Mali and all these neighbors that have problems and Al-Qaeda and things, and I, th I think we're, we, as Libyans, and we're quite sick of hearing this, to be honest with you, because it's nothing to do with Al-Qaeda. There will be a few people who will be selling guns here and there and everywhere, trying to, and this is why there is a, a, a major call now inside the country that the new interim government now buys all the weapons from the, the people who have it just to get rid of all the, especially the light weapons and, and, and so on. So there are a lot of, a lot of people in, in Libya now, especially in, uh, in, uh, whether they're in the army or whether they're the new technocrats. They're trying to get over this security issue and, and sort it out. But Libya will not be involved in Qaeda stuff and, uh, and, and civil wars in Africa and things. I mean, Libyans had enough with Gaddafi's involvement in Africa, in Chad and in Niger and... Uh, Uganda and trying to, uh, because with Gaddafi it was a case of trying to, to, to cause chaos uh, in the countries near, near us, in the, probably in his, in his psychology, is that is, if, if people are, are, are not very comfortable, if people are not settled in, in, uh, in, our, in our neighbors, that, that he, will be, he will feel more secure or something like that. I, I mean, I, this is his strategy in, in Africa. Haitha Sardesadeg is uh, an optimist. Uh, in South Africa, they ha had a truth and reconciliation process. Is, yeah. is there a need for a similar sort of thing in Libya? Of course, it's, it's a must. You know, it's, it's very easy to sit and say, you know, we Libyans, uh, we don't like violence. Iraqis don't like violence. I mean, you know, the Lebanese now kind of, again, I go back to Lebanon, and the Lebanese talk about the civil war as if kind of it's a different nation that formed the civil war. So it's always the sense, like, you know, we can't do this. We cannot commit these crimes. The point is, I mean, yes, there were mercenaries in Libya, but it was Libyans who did these, you know, the killings, the executions, the rapes, whether pro-Qaddafi or, you know, anti-Qaddafi. And I went with a unit that was, you know, a rebel unit that raided the Muslim neighborhood. And, and those are the people who suffered, who were in jails, who were tortured by Qaddafi. And when you see the way kind of they storm into houses, they break into houses, they shoot in the air, so there is still this kind of the violence. Uh, of course, it's, it's the, the, you know, the heritage of 42 years of, of a dictatorship, uh, six, seven months of a bloody fighting, call it liberation, call it civil war, whatever. So violence is there. Uh, you can't deny it. You can't shy away from it. You know, really <laughs> I think if you're comparing the violence of the uh, brigades against the Libyan people and the freedom fighters, I think you're, yes, you, you are yes, being absolutely unfair. Because no, with no, the, no, 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 I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I have to cut you in this, because 
with the revolutionaries, with the freedom fighters, the incidents are very isolated incidents. We do not deny that there were some, uh, some, some incidents, but it was not systematic like there were with the Gaddafi troops. Well, and there is evidence, foreign, of course, from hum foreign, Human Rights Watch and other, foreign, other organizations uh, of quite large-scale killings, actually. But to the credit, I think, of the National Transitional Council, it said that it will cooperate with investigation into those. But I think that dwelling on violence is not really the point right now. I think that to do so is to underplay the significance of the enormous change that has already taken place. And issues like truth and reconciliation uh, will certainly happen in the future. Though I don't think that the parallel with Iraq quite works. There's no uh, equivalent of the sort of debathification that took place Absolutely, in Iraq, simply yeah. because Libya is a very different country with far less formal structures. Yeah. And I think the signs are actually quite promising that apart from people who had, as the Libyan uh, uh, rebels said, blood on their hands and had carried out crimes or stole the resources of the people, others who had been part of the regime would remain in place because without them, it would all fall apart. And that's a very significant issue for existing structures in places like, for example, the National Oil Corporation, which is the most significant part of the Libyan economy. There are demands from employees for the removal of managers and other personnel who were deemed to be too close to the regime. But I don't think you're going to see a wholesale sacking of people or very large-scale trials, because I think Libyans recognize that in a dictatorship that lasted for so long, it was very hard not to be compromised by working with the system. And I think that's a very grown-up and positive attitude towards, uh, uh, towards how to, to make this transition from dictatorship to something, hopefully, that will be very, very different. Hey, looking to the future, did you get a sense of what you think the priorities should be there now? Um, yeah, I mean, again, for me, kind of priorities, again, uh, you know, I, you know I, I, I've seen this kind of in different places. Priorities, I think, disarming, disarming militias, uh, getting all the militias when within one structure, the NTC structure, uh, having the militias to recognize the, the you know, the civilian uh, uh, rule uh, over Libya. I think this is the most important thing at the moment. Saad, what do you see as being the priorities? Obviously, there's a new interim prime minister there now. Um, to what extent will that help the process? Mr. Keep, Mr. Keep is a is a very competent professional. He's a very he has a very good he enjoys a very good reputation, and I think this is what Libya needs at the present time is a good technocrat that's going to uh, take uh, you know to to sort of uh, look at the infrastructure to try and sort out security uh, as Mr. Abdullahad because he seems to be very very. Uh, concerned about the, sea, the, the, the militias. Actually, most of the militias, they are now under the defense ministry. There are a few who have not yet uh, gone under the, the ministry, but most of the other, uh, most of the militia leaders, they have joined the ministry and they have already called that if the others must join in, otherwise they will be considered illegitimate. So this is something that is happening already. And with Mr. Keep, I think he's 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 the right man for the for the for this particular stage. And I think with a with a strong uh, technocrat uh, government, I think we're going to see some 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 good work in the uh, in the next few months. Ian, do uh, in Britain and in France, is Mr. Keep seen as being a good man to take the whole thing forward? I think that. The way this, the Libyan situation is seen is that there is this transition. The National Transitional Council, its name makes that clear, is to form a bridge, if you like, between the end of the dictatorship and something new. With uh, the fall of Sirte, where Gaddafi was killed on the 20th, 
that was taken as the trigger for the announcement of the total liberation of Libya as announced by Mustafa Jalil in Benghazi on, uh, I think, on October the 23rd. There is now quite a, quite a precise and quite a crowded timetable for change, the choice of uh, a, an interim uh, government, the writing, uh, uh, sorry, elections for some sort of constituent yes. assembly, the writing of a constitution. These are huge tasks for a country which, let's remember, has never had an election. The last yeah. election in Libya was in the 1950s under the monarchy that was overthrown by Gaddafi and his fellow uh, free officers in 1969. The Libyans have had none of the experience that we take for granted, whether it's issues like you know, voter registration, technical matters, or simply the idea that parties can operate freely and legally and compete for people's votes. It's an extraordinary uh, uh, novelty of the whole thing. So the transitional government is uh, is tackling those those issues at the same time as we've discussed at some length it's got to deal with the security issues of absorbing the rebel brigades the katibas into some kind of national structure there's no doubt there are tensions there and there's no doubt that there are differences between regions of personalities of outside interests that are involved to some extent wanting to have their influence in the new libya but it is a work in progress and i again i think it's worth saying that reminding listeners of the scale of the transformation and generally of the tremendous optimism that there is going to be something new and different and better in the future. Saad Esadek, how much help does Libya need in terms of moving towards democracy and towards those elections? I, I believe the, Libya will need massive help in, in order to move on to, uh, towards democracy. As Ian was saying, the transformations are massive and, and huge, and Libyans haven't got the uh, experience of, uh, of moving on towards uh, a democratic system in, um, uh, you know, as, as we take it for granted here in Britain or in, in Europe. But I think, you know, I've been, I mean, I was in Libya just a, a month ago, and you can see the, 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 you know, the enthusiasm. Everybody wants to make it work. You know, people want to make it work. People want to relax. They want to, they want democracy. They want to, the word to be heard. And I think if this government at least makes an initial start, a positive initial start, and manages to get the trust of the people, they will, they will have the time. I mean, it, it, is, it is being set as eight months, but I'm sure if they need more time, people will give them that time. Heath, we heard, sorry, from uh, Lord, Lord Trethgarn, who talked about um, the, the, the businesses that are going over to Libya and, and wanting to, uh, uh, to get contracts there. Um, do you think that that will be welcomed, or is there a, a view in Libya that you know, we can do this by, largely by ourselves? I think it will be welcomed. Of course, it's a gold rush. I was there in Libya, I think, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, and, and already the lobby of the hotel, as Ian would know, was filled, you know, with kind of, you know, businessmen and diplomats kind of brushing shoulders with, with uh, journalists and militiamen. It, it was a very, very interesting scene. Why, why not? I mean, let's have businesses going there in, in Libya. I mean, as long as they don't want to reclaim a sort of payback to the role of NATO in, in toppling Gaddafi, as long as they would go and compete and there's a transparency. And, and uh, uh, I, I think that that wouldn't be a bad thing. Um, uh, but to have the perception that, uh, you know, British, French or Italians are trying to, uh, you know, get a preferential treatment because they, you know, helped Abu Qaddafi, I think that will be perceived uh, in, a, in a negative light. And Saad, how can Libya make its mark? Is it just oil or are there other things that, uh, that, that will allow it to, uh, to, to play a full part on the world stage? 
Well, uh, I, I think the oil will be will be obviously helping to make the start. I mean, Libya is is is, is a country with two thousand kilometers on the Mediterranean, mm. so just fishing would uh, bring it quite a lot of wealth as well, and. Uh, agriculture and uh, small industries and heavy industries and so on there is a, an awful lot going for libya if it's if it's it, it, i mean libya it is about management and this is what we've been missing in the 42 years of gaddafi there was absolutely no management whatsoever it was just chaotic and changes and in the education Libyans system not missing anything at the moment you know and, i mean whatever is going to come uh, as long as it's competent and uh, people who are sincere and they're really patriotic and they want to to help to to do some work, it is not going to be difficult to make a mark because people are used to to, to nothing. Ian, you mentioned the education system. Well, I was going to say it will be in the detail. Won't there's, it? A, there's a couple of points. I mean, uh, I, I I think I agree with Saab's general optimism. Uh, I think tourism is potentially yeah. a huge boon for Libya. As you said, yeah. it's got this tremendous coastline. It's got beaches really to die for, of the sort that in neighboring Tunisia, of course, have been a magnet for, uh, for, for Western tourism. And of course, Libya being a conservative Muslim country as it is, it cannot throw itself open completely to uh, complete, you know, to, to, to unchecked uh, hordes uh, behaving as they would at home. There are bound to be restrictions on that. But I think to develop a tourist industry with enormous potential links into a huge question in Libya. All Libyans, if you ask them, in my experience, what they're most concerned about in this new era, they talk about education and they talk about healthcare as the two things that yep. were appallingly neglected for so right. long. And education, of course, enables people to play their part in a modern economy which is suited to the resources and character of the country. So if Libya wants to develop, for example, that tourist industry which it could so well benefit from, it will need to educate people to be managers and to work in that industry in a way which in the past, because of their very great wealth relative to the region, they've been able to pay other people to do. Libya started to fall apart after the revolution in February, not simply because of the violence perpetrated by the regime against protesters, but also because thousands and thousands of people fled the country. The people who did all the jobs, who worked in the bakeries and on the construction yep. sites and so on and so forth. Libyans have to be able to do that for themselves in order to rebuild an economy worthy of the potential that they've got. Saad so, Esadeg, um, where do you see Libya being, I don't know, three, four years from now? Um, what would success look like? I, I think uh, Libya will, be, will make a big shift towards the future in, in the next four years. And this will depend on the start Mr. Keep and his government will, make, will, 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 will do now. If the initial start is good and well planned, I think we're going to see a very, very, big, very, very completely different Libya in four years from now. Okay, so reasons to worry and causes for hope. But these are all interesting thoughts at a critical time for Libya. Unfortunately, those are all the thoughts we have time for this week. Thanks to Ian Black, Haith Abdullahad and Saad Esadeg. I'm Hugh Muir. The producer of this Focus podcast was Peter Sale. Until next time, thanks for listening. great downloads go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio